0: Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. I said to her, I'm I'm already crying. (laughs) Shoot. This is not good. I had spiritual direction this morning. My heart's just so raw today, guys. I don't know what's going to happen. All right. Okay, let me get set here. I am so honored to be speaking tonight. I'm so honored to be with you. I was saying at the beginning I was like this this feels like the the definition of preaching to the choir like this is <laughs> like like hello, faithful, awesome people that like you already it's just so wonderful to be with you to be with people who I mean, I know so many of you, I've worked with a lot of you, I've been able to preach with a lot of you, it's just, uh, it's an honor. My brother priests are here, some of the brother priests, where are my brother priests? There's some right there, Barry, Chuck, hey Matt. All right, wonderful, so awesome, Father Damien. Wonderful, wonderful. So, uh, let's get into this, but let's first pray. Let's do that first. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Lord God Almighty, I give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, all the thanks for assembling us here tonight, Lord, for gathering this unique body of people, your sons and daughters, to share in, to dream about this much-needed mission, injecting truth into the bloodstream of a very sick body. Lord, we ask you tonight to open our hearts and our minds, and eventually our wallets. (laughs) Lord, because you cannot be outdone in generosity. We give this night to you, Jesus, through Mary's intercession as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John Paul the Great. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I want to thank Jen. Jen. She was my first Theology of the Body teacher back when I was in high school, that junior year, senior year, and of course, Father Damien Ferentz, of course, as well. He was so instrumental in uh, just beginning to share this vision with me, and it's been such a joy to study it over these past many years. So the board and Jen, they asked me to speak tonight, and I quote, they wanted me to share on some of the cultural trends affecting our world today and... How John Paul II's theology of the body is the antidote to all of that, and why sharing theology of the body is needed now more than ever. So, I prepared I prepared some notes for the presentation <laughs> this evening. I hope you're comfortable. We will be here a while. Okay, I can Alright. For those of you who've ever heard me preach, you're like, that, that probably that's probably real. Okay. Alright, so when I sat down and began getting my thoughts together on this, a oh, month and a half or so ago, I sat down with the Lord and the image that first came to my mind was a memory. A memory of when, uh, I think I was in high school, maybe college, but uh, my dad, where's my dad, my dad hosted at our house in, on East High, or uh, yeah, on East Highgate in Hudson, a um, CPR and AED certification class, Right? So it was, it was our family and this instructor, I don't know if they were from the Red Cross, I don't know where they were from, but they brought in all of these like, mechanical dummies in the room, and they were teaching us how to do chest compressions, and you know, like, how to do the whole defibrillator thing, which I thought was cool, I thought we were going to get to demonstrate that, on, I was hoping I could do that to my little brother, but you didn't get to do that, but... Uh, I remember like, I remember like the memory that, part of the memory that came back was like, I remember being very exhausted doing these chest compressions. I'm like, I better be in better shape if I'm ever going to save somebody's life, right? Like Kevin from The Office, right? Just call it. Just call it. What time? 704. They're dead. So now thanks be to God, I've never had to actually use CPR. I've never had to resuscitate anybody or call, you know, you go call 911. You go get the AED. I've never had to do that. Thanks be to God. Never had to do that. But, but honestly, I will say this. So much of priesthood, so much of priesthood, and my brother Priest will attest to this, so much of priesthood has felt like being a medic in a moral and spiritual disaster zone. For those of you who have ever seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge, it feels like Desmond Doss, right, who's just running around in one of the most brutal battles, World War II, trying to find body after body, trying to resuscitate, trying to save people. Jen mentioned that the uh, I was part of the inception of this whole organization, and you know, going back five six years ago, Jen, myself, uh, Father Ryan Mann, Father Joe Koopman, the four of us got together. We call ourselves the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, Uh, and Father Joe identified himself as the Clydesdale of the group. We're like, Joe, that's a horse. We're the horsemen. He's like, I'm the Clydesdale. Anyway, we got together because there was this growing awareness that we've got to do something we've got to do something to proactively start bringing theology of the body to our people in this diocese especially our young people and the image that kept occurring in our prayer was this image of all of us it feels like in our ministry we stand on the bank of a river and floating down the river come all of these bodies all day long these bodies come down the river and and it's like you run into the river you grab one pull it to shore and you try and resuscitate it. And some you do, and many you don't, right? And it's like and the bodies just keep coming, and it's like, what if, we, what if we walked up the river to see what's going on up there? Because if we can stop the thing that's happening that's causing the bodies to float down the river, that would be a much better course of action. So when we talk about the cultural trends affecting our world today, we're talking about an all-out assault against the human person, against masculinity, against femininity, against marriage and family. It's what Mary revealed to the children of Fatima, that Russia would spread her errors throughout the world. Not merely communism, but the errors built into, baked into communist Marxist theory, which is necessitated the abolition of marriage and family. They wanted to destroy marriage and family. There's an all-out assault against all of these things, against the family, against the dignity of the person. And the net result of all of this all-out war is so much pain and so many bodies just floating down the river, so to speak. Like, we see this attack against the human person in every facet of our contemporary culture. It bombards us day and night. And you know this, right? You all know this. You just turn on the TV. It's on the Internet. It's social media. It's in movies. It's in TV. It's the political narrative that's most operative today it's on television networks like disney and nickelodeon it's unavoidable there it's on espn it's on cnn and fox news it's everywhere it's youtube it's movies it's instagram snapchat facebook everywhere that we are it's there this all-out assault it's the last war and here's the effect here's the effect here are some of the bodies, so to speak, that are floating down the river and into my confessional as a priest, into my office as a pastoral counselor. Here's what we're dealing with all the time, and all these examples are real situations that either I've dealt with or that my brother priest, friends of mine, have either, that they've dealt with. Take this smartphone-addicted 15-year-old girl who, because of social media influencers, her own adolescent awkwardness, the strained relationship she has with her own parents, She's decided, or she's thinking about, going no longer by she, her pronouns because she's wondering, am I really a girl? Maybe I'm bisexual, maybe I'm non-binary, maybe I'm cis, queer, trans. Mind you, the 15-year-old girl, right? Planned Parenthood is waiting there in the wings, all too happy to provide her Lupron, which is a drug that the FDA has said is not even good enough to give to sex offenders, but it's good enough for our adolescent kids to halt puberty. Or the miserable high school boy, after hiding a porn addiction for many, many years, finds his life crumbling, feeling his heart crippled and unable to actually engage in conversations with anybody really anymore. Can't make eye contact, and he's miserable. Or the depressed college freshman who's so jaded because of her sex life. She's been on the pill since she was 14 because, well, acne, you know. And at this point, she doesn't expect much in the way of relationships with guys, she wonders, why does it seem that they get all the benefits and I don't get any friendship? And she hates herself. And she's wondering if she's pregnant again. Or the unmarried woman whose contraception has failed. She would prefer, she would have preferred not to be a single mother, but the child's father, he won't commit. And honestly, he's not really the kind of guy she wants to marry anyway. She was told all along, just as long as she took the pill, that she would not have to worry about it. But there's breakthrough ovulation. There's all sorts of things. And there she is, pregnant with baby number three, daddy number two, and no ring on a finger anywhere in sight. Or take the cohabitating woman who spends years in a relationship with a boyfriend who won't commit. And honestly, why would he? There's no need. He gets everything he wants, right? And she feels so stuck and stupid after being in this relationship with this guy for years. I mean, after all, they're dog parents, you know? And all of her stuff's in his house. Their lives are so mingled. Their financials are connected. She wants actual commitment and actual babies with an actual husband, and she cries so much by herself. Or the woman who had an abortion decades ago, and now that she's 70 years old, all the reasons she had... For having the abortion they all sound so hollow now to her no one takes her or her regrets seriously not her counselors not her friends not her boyfriends who all along quickly became ex-boyfriends she's now looking at 70 never married was never able to have kids because the abortion procedure perforated her uterus and she was left sterile and she hates herself she can't be in a room with crying babies Or let's call this kid David. He's a fifth grader. He was exposed to pornography at a sleepover with his cousins. And now at 10 years old, he experiences this as a compulsive addiction. And his parents didn't know until they discovered that he was acting out with a younger sibling. Trauma, compounding trauma over and over. Or take the heartbroken career woman, right, who bought into the lie that if she wanted to be successful or taken seriously as a woman she should delay getting married and at the like at most she should delay having children she has to prove herself climb the corporate ladder but now she's 45 and she's still single and she's pre-menopausal and she's so sad she doesn't go to family functions anymore because she hates being around her siblings who are so happy with all their kids Her friends tell her that she should have taken her company up on their offer to have her eggs frozen when she was still fertile, because, you know, corporations do that now. Or they'll be so happy to pay for your out-of-state abortion. Thanks, corporate, right? Or take the spouse who is now alone and reluctantly divorced after 35 years of marriage and wondering what the rest of his life, her life is going to look like. Just as you're entering this season of, should be getting ready to be grandparents together. But now you're alone in a loft downtown, miserable, or the donor conceived young adult who is plagued with questions about identity and is so afraid of unintentionally running into or meeting or, God forbid, dating a half sibling who's out there or the child of divorced parents who feels rejected and replaced by his newer half-siblings or the grandparents who don't get to see or have any access to their grandchildren anymore because of the divorce and on and on and on and on it goes right what do all of these what do all of these examples have in common either these people bought into and based their lives on fundamental lies about the human person and sexuality or they themselves were the victim of other people's decisions They were based on false ideas about what it means to be human and where happiness comes from and the meaning of sexuality, right? Like the net result of all of these lies is so much pain, unimaginable pain, so much trauma, so much sadness, so much grief, so much loneliness. It's a famine of love. This is Theology of the Body Cleveland. you got to quote John Paul II. This is what he said. Man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. Atrice of Calcutta, she said this, that the greatest disease in the West today is not tuberculosis or leprosy. It's being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little bit of love. Friends, first and foremost, right, the reason why theology of the body is needed today because, like medicine, it counteracts the lies with the truth. That theology of the body is the balm of truth applied to the wounds of those who are the victims of the sexual revolution. And there are victims. And there are so many. So what is, what was the sexual revolution? The sexual revolution consists of ideas and policies that put those ideas into practice, and the technologies that supported those ideas and policies, right? The three main ideas of the sexual revolution are essentially this that a good and decent society should, one, separate sex from childbearing. This is the contraceptive ideology that's in our culture, in our world today. Just give it, taken as a norm, give it, it's taken as a given, right? It's the idea that life is all about sex. You see the diabolical inversion here, right? Because the truth is that sex is all about life. <laughs> the second idea that a good and decent society should separate both sex and childbearing from marriage. This is what we would call the divorce ideology that you have a right to personal fulfillment and personal happiness no matter what, and the children will be fine because they're resilient. And you don't need to be married to have kids, right? Kids don't really need a married mother and father. Furthermore, marriage isn't really about sex and kids and the procreative act, right? Because anybody should have the right to get married. Anybody can be married. It has nothing to do with childbearing. It's a divorce ideology, the third idea of the sexual revolution is that a good and decent society should try to eliminate all distinctions between men and women, except, of course, those distinctions. Or the, except, of course, except, of course, those distinctions that are explicitly chosen and embraced by individuals. Right? This is what we will call the gender ideology. This is way more in the news these days than it has been before. Right? Do away with man and woman. Do away with mother and father. Do away with the family. As the social unit do away with traditional marriage, birth certificates should just say parent one and parent two or parent three and parent four. don't need a mother and father, right? So what does all this lead to? It leads to immense pain and immense suffering and death and loneliness and people living without love and without meaning, without the ability to answer the most pressing fundamental human question, which is, who am I? Who the heck am I? Like, you cannot build a good and decent society on the foundation of lies. If the foundation is wrong, anything built upon it is going to crumble. Right? This is what John Paul II called our culture. This is why he called our culture the culture of death. Because it's built on lies. It's built on an erroneous idea of the human person and what brings happiness and fulfillment. People today, right, especially young people, They are saturated in this culture. In social media, internet, all of this, they are so lost and so hurting. We are just beginning to see, especially the effects of this, especially in two years of COVID lockdowns and you're just in front of screens and you're just in that digital world, right? All the studies are bearing this out, that all of this fervor in our world, all the craziness you see on college campuses and in the news and in the political narrative, all this fervor about identity, right, gender identity, racial identity, political identity, it all comes down to the question of identity. Everyone's asking, who am I? It's a question about identity. This is the crisis. We don't know who we are. I'm going to quote from a book that was mind-blowing for me that I read earlier this year. It's by Mary Eberstadt. The book is called Primal Screams. She wrote the following, Forgive me for the long quote. She says this, Up until the middle of the 20th century, and barring the frequent foreshortening of life by disease or natural catastrophe, human expectations remained largely the same throughout the ages. That one would grow up to have children and a family. That parents and siblings and extended family would remain one's primal community. That again, barring the unforeseen, one would have parents and siblings and extended family in the first place. And that conversely, it was a tragedy not to be part of a family. The post 1960s order of sexual consumerism has upended every one of these expectations. It has erased the givenness into which generations are born. Who am I? is a universal human question. It becomes harder to answer if other basic questions are problematic or out of reach. Who is my brother? Who is my father? Where, if anywhere, are my cousins, grandparents, nieces, nephews, and the rest of the organic connections through which humanity, up until now, channeled everyday existence? It is this loss of givenness that drives the frenzied search for identity these days. To the question, who am I? An illiterate peasant of the Middle Ages was better equipped to answer that question than many people in advanced societies in this century. TOB, friends, it's the antidote. Theology of the body is the antidote, quite simply because it's the truth. (laughs) I don't know a more simple way to put it. It's the antidote because it's the truth. It's the truth about God, it's the truth about man, it's the truth about our complementarity why we are male and female, why we have these bodies, why we have these desires. It's the truth about sex. It's the truth about who God is and how we're meant to relate to him. It's the truth about the church. It's the truth about the sacraments. It's the deepest truth about the meaning of scripture. It's just the truth. Can I get an amen? Amen. There we go. It's the truth. It answers the question about where we come from and where we're going And most importantly, it tells us how to get there. His name is Jesus. The word made flesh that the center of the Christian life is a body. At the culmination of the mass is an exhortation to look at a body. Behold, right? The Lamb of God. Look at him. Here he is. You can point to him in the flesh. And since this is the truth, it is the only thing that sets us free. Since it is the truth, it's the only thing that sets us free. It enables us most to come alive and most to flourish. It's, I'm reminded of back in the day when my dad and I would shop for plants at Home Depot, right? Those plants would come with tags that tell you like, how the plant is supposed to flourish, right? This kind of plant needs this much sunlight. This kind of plant needs this much shade, this much water. All those sorts of things. Now, you're free to ignore all of those things. Like, I'm going to put this one in total sunlight. Good luck, right? You're, you're, not, you're free to do that. You're just not free of the consequences of doing that. Right? And that's what we're experiencing. Theology of the body is the tag that comes with the human person. Because only that which is true can be a vector of aspiration for human flourishing. It's the only thing that can show us where to go, where to find happiness, where to find wholeness. It's so much more, as some people have tried to say, it's so much more than a Catholic chastity program. right? It's so much more than explaining, don't have sex until you're married. And then if you do, just don't enjoy it too much. Right? <laughs> Theology of the body. It is the lens to see reality, right? This is the story behind the story. This is the corrective lens. We all need corrective lenses. Jesus, you can't read the gospels and miss the point that Jesus was intensely interested in healing our sight, right? Over and over again, he's healing people's blindness, right? In weird ways sometimes too, making mud and putting people's eyes, right? Like, oh, right. But he says, come and become one who sees. Implying, of course, that we don't see right. We don't see right. Theology of the body is needed now so much more than ever because there is an all-out assault, like I said, on the human person. We are living in this third millennium of the church, which we could say is marked by a fundamental heresy. Every millennium of the church has had its own thematic heresy. right? The first millennium... You had Christological heresies, people battling out questions over who is Jesus. Second millennium, you had ecclesiological heresies, right? Questions about the church. This is where we have the great schism between the East and the West, the Protestant Reformation that broke out. Questions about what is the church? In this third millennium that we're living through, it's anthropological. It's questions about the human person, and it is boiling over right now. Did it just get brighter? Am I like losing my mind? Okay. You're illuminating. Things. I by uh, illuminating things. That's right, Dan. Yeah. I thought I kept an eye on my drink the whole time. Okay. Friends, it's needed now so much more than ever because there really is an enemy, and he hates innocence, and he hates children. Good. That was on cue. That was perfect. <laughs> I don't have time to go into the detail. I'm probably already over. Oh, no, I'm still good. This is amazing. Okay. I can, I can go to my notes. Okay. It's needed because now more than ever, there are so many who are suffering because nobody told them the truth. I mean, I would venture to guess that there are many of us who are here today who came to Theology of the Body after a long road, a very circuitous route of taking all of the wrong paths and finally being like, you know, this doesn't seem right. And now you're here, right? There's so many people who just haven't been told there's another way. Nobody had the courage to tell them the truth. And maybe the people that did have the courage, they didn't have the resources. They didn't didn't know what to say. That's most parents, by the way, right? (laughs) I don't know how to answer my kids' questions. I don't know how to answer my teenagers' questions about... Gay marriage and transgenderism. I don't know how to answer questions about contraception and why your cousin Sally is now saying that she's David. I, I don't know how to answer that. I want to answer it. I just don't know the answer. Theology of the body is needed now more than ever to give a vision to modern man, right? The modern human person, especially in America, the person is so, we're so jaded, so cynical, And so just unconsciously materialistic. Like even us who are Christians and Catholics. We carry a deep materialism in us. If I don't see it in front of me. It's not real. We're so weighed down in our world today by politics. And we're so wounded and so alienated by all of this. Like I, I, I think I'm not the only one. But. It's just exhausting these days. Like, it's just exhausting. Like, what's the next thing I have to think about? Oh, now boys and girls, oh, they're the same thing now? Okay. No, they're not the same thing? Now people can be animals now? That's not the new thing? Oh, gosh. Like, no, that was so last week. <laughs> like, I can't keep up. Here's one of the biggest things. that theology of the body gives language to the deepest desires and aspirations of the human heart. Jen talked about that priest who just was lost and, and losing his way, and, and theology of the body helped him rediscover what it meant to be a priest. Like, what am I doing in this vocation? I don't know how I could be a priest today without theology of the body. It's like, there's, there's no real great, <laughs> I'll put it this way it used to be the case that the priest was the smartest guy in his parish, the most educated. And it used to be the case that the priest would get the new Cadillac every single year. And it used to be the case that the priest was the most well-respected. And it used to be the case that the priest would walk into the room, and, oh, Father, it's so wonderful. Father, here, please sit. Father, all these. Like, I came of age in a church that had the cloud of the sex abuse crisis over us. The only reason why any guy is a priest today is because Jesus, that they met Jesus. And they discovered in him the pearl of great price that was worth selling everything for. I don't, under, I don't know how without theology of the body I would understand my desire for fatherhood or my desire for spousal love. Like, it gives us language that it's the bridge that connects our hearts to the gospel. Because the gospel is not the astounding good news that we have all these rules that you can follow that to, you can be a good boy and girl and maybe go to heaven. That's not the astounding good news. The astounding good news, the, the astounding proposal at the heart of the Gospel, is that there is a proposal at the heart of the Gospel. That there is a God who bends the knee before the human person and says, I am obsessed with you, and I want to spend eternity with you. And that the best way I can describe it is it's like a marriage. Friends, like, we have hearts, right? We have hearts. I got a heart. You have a heart that's full of desire and longing and, like, People just don't know what to do with that anymore, right? If they're even in touch with their hearts, right? I think St. Augustine, I mean, he was one who said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you, that we live in a world now that everybody's just connected to the narcotic morphine drip of their phones and the news and just our hearts are being put to sleep. We're losing our humanity, but we have hearts still that are leading us in all sorts of places. Most of those places are destructive, especially in the area of sexuality so it's like what are we supposed to do with those hearts what are we supposed to do with those desires are we supposed to repress them like is that what it means to be a good christian you just repress all your desire or are we supposed to indulge them like just gorge yourself in the feast of the culture and a lot of people are trying right but it's like what if there's another way what if there's another way? What if there's another way to be human? What if modern men and women discovered theology of the body and learned that through Jesus Christ, there's another way? Friends, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land this plane. I'm going to land this plane. Perfect. A few minutes. Here we go. But I'm going to end with the words of Jesus. That seems fitting, right? That's what John Paul II did. He started with the words of Jesus, and he ended with the words of Jesus. That's, that's what I'm going to do. So when Jesus started his ministry, he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, And says he unrolls the scroll. It's from the prophet Isaiah, and he read from the scroll. It's a summary. It's like him saying, this is my mission statement. This is what I've come here to do. This is what I've come here to accomplish. And I want to read this. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And he went to the synagogue, as his custom was on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord in a word I mean to be totally honest I don't know what the mission statement of Theology of the Body Cleveland is but that's it what I just read that's what Jen is trying to do and her team and the board that's what this is about this is what they're trying to do and they will be able to do even more because of your generous support what they're doing is a continuation of Jesus' ministries plain and simple they're still bringing sight to the blind and they're still releasing prisoners think of all those people I described in the beginning they just need to be touched by Jesus he's the world's only hope All of those sad and painful situations, all of those ruined lives, all of those blinded and imprisoned by the lies of the sexual revolution. That's what Theology of the Body is. And that's what TOBCLE is doing and cannot do without your generous support. So thank you.